0: The Black Doctors Podcast, season six. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show, uh, for you listening. You know, welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. Um, so happy to be talking with Dr. Mazzi today, um, otherwise known as uh, Dr. Marius Chukura. Chukura, yeah. Right mm-hmm. on. And it's been a minute. We were together at Howard University College of Medicine for a couple years before I moved on. Uh, you were just starting, mm-hmm. and after finishing medical school, you went to Duke for residency in internal medicine and now you're completing a cardiology fellowship in uh Philly. So well, thanks for thanks for joining the show, man.
1: Well thanks for having me, man. Uh definitely been you know following along with your podcast and it's the great initiative you're doing. So I'm happy to be a part of this.
0: This podcast is sponsored by PicMonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories, featuring over 35,000 high yield facts and graphics. Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less but remember more. Appreciate it. I'm trying to get more perspectives from folks still in the training pipeline, although I guess I'm back in the training pipeline, so so there's some perspective. <laughs> Man, so, so tell us, you're, you're from Maryland, but uh, what, what got you interested in medicine? How did you end up becoming a physician?
1: Yeah, yeah. So nothing really exciting, to be honest. My parents uh, pushed me from childhood. They kind of like kept planting the seed in my head, like, hey, you're going to be a doctor one day, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a doctor. And that's all I ever knew. So I, you know, I always tell folks, you know, I never really knew anything else. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else because my parents literally kind of molded me into doing that uh, since I can, as far as I can remember. And, you know, it's kind of a, there's a lot of pros and cons to that type of approach, I think, as parenting, because, you know, I ended up going to Eastern Tech High School in Maryland where I did an allied health program. So I took like pre-health classes as early as high school, um, getting involved with like medical terminology, uh, physical therapy, anatomy um, and physiology, like starting in the ninth grade. Man. I went to college, yeah, I went to college, did the, the whole pre-med biological sciences, like the real textbook. I'm a traditional student by far. I didn't do anything out of the ordinary when it comes to this path. Uh, then I did apply to med school, went to Howard, and it wasn't really until I got to Howard and we did, you know, first year, they put you in a uh type of thing where you, you shadow a doctor, Yeah, whatever specialty you choose. So for me, it was internal medicine uh, early on, and it wasn't until I was in that clinic, like with uh outpatient clinic with a physician that i was like wow i really like like what they're doing i see myself doing this one day like i love this
0: really dream,
1: that's when i was in med school that's the first time <laughs> I <actually laughs> after the mcat after the mcat my I'm just doing everything <laughs> because it's the way to get to med school it's the way to, to move wow. forward that's why i'm like it's pros and cons because i had somebody early on tell me i can do it you know it's always good to put that still that faith and that um that uh, vision into a child and young adult as they're coming up. But imagine I got to med school. I got to that pivotal point where, you know, I'm getting really exposed to a hands-on first, you know, uh, front row and center, and I didn't like it. It's, like, kind of late by that point to, to switch gears. So I'm just glad that it worked out and I continued on the path from that point.
0: Now, that that's interesting, though, because, I mean, obviously, even with that incredible parental support and guidance, you still had to put a lot of work into it. And I'm sure there was some times where you had to, you know, your friends were out there, um, you know, having fun and you were probably hustling and working and grinding. So do you feel like you missed out on anything, you know, looking back?
1: Uh, believe it or not, not really. Cause I was always, my friends will say this to you today. Like I was always the guy that found a way to get it all done. Like I never really, (laughs) yeah, I never really missed out on the social scene, the, the clubs, organizations, uh, you know, joined a fraternity in college. Like I was really able to, I mean, it took a lot of finesse, mind you. And also, you know, I always tell people, well, you always have something that always has to give, right? For me, it was probably sleep. <laughs> like, Oof. okay, I, I you know. I didn't, I would come back from like social functions, quote unquote parties, if you want to label them that. Come back and go straight to the library and go study. How, how else would we label them? No, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, networking, uh, <laughs> congregation, whatever you want to call it, but, And I would come back from those things and go to the library and study. I knew I had to get the grades. I had to meet the mark to move on and kind of see through my courses. And, you know, by no means I need to pre-made classes easy, like pursuing medical school before you can get to medical school. So I just I just found a way and made a way.
0: Man, so you said you're in medical school, you're doing the preceptorship and you're exposed to internal medicine and then that's when you said like you at least liked medicine. It was it were you set on internal medicine at that time?
1: Uh not necessarily. Actually, there was a point where I was considering uh orthopedic surgery and for all the wrong reasons. Uh simply because it was the cool thing the jocks were doing, like the the cool uh ortho bros, if you will. And I, I realized, you know, I knew I liked sports and I knew I liked the idea of you know procedural field. But, you know, when I saw kind of like the grows, the group of people in my class or even classes above me, you probably know Brian Wanunu.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I
1: looked up to him and he, I saw he was the ortho. I was like, let me look into this. Man, when I tell you, I got to my third year. I was in the OR. I'll never forget I was in a case with a Dr. Ford. Uh, it was a colorectal surgery case. Like a hemicolectomy or a total colectomy. I can't remember. But I was there like scrubbed in, retracting the abdomen. For like seven hours straight,
0: <laughs>
1: I was like, "Hell no, <laughs> surgery's not for me." I got that back, got that knees from basketball. I was like, you know what, this isn't it. So, cross surgery off the list pretty quickly. Internal medicine was like my kind of like my fallback plan Z. Like regardless of anything, if I if I explored you know multiple options and nothing else really seemed appealing to me, I was going to go the route of internal medicine. Okay. Because prior to med school, that's why I shadowed. Um, um, to get my you know, clinical shadowing hours before applying to med school, it was internal medicine doctors and outpatient setting and also the urgent care clinic as well. So that's really what was most familiar to me. And it's not like I chose medicine, uh, coming out of med school by de- like, because nothing else was appealing. It was more so because, you know, nothing else was appealing. And when I did my internal medicine rotation, I was like, wow, these, these folks are really cerebral. They know their stuff. It was, to me, the, the ideal picture of what a doctor's doctor like, looks like, what yeah. the typical stereotypical doctor looks like. And then beyond that, I had interest in, in cardio, uh, cardiology from the preclinical years in the classroom. So I pursued it. I did an elective on the cardiology console um, service at Howard in the hospital. And, uh, you know, again, kind of that cerebral, evidence-based, uh, practical approach to medicine, I saw that I embodied even more. A cardiologist that I was uh, rounding with, like Dr. Bohotra, mm-hmm. Dr. Williams was another one. Uh, just seemed like the smartest people in the hospital. I was like, wow, I really want to be like them one day. And they really took their time with medical education, like working with us students and even the residents and interns, teaching, walking through different, um, you know, thought processes and and you know, dissecting a patient's uh, uh, pathophysiology and you know, talking through the management steps. And I was like, this is really what I envision myself doing one day. So the interest from cardiology really was stemmed in that moment, those moments. But I knew internal medicine was the way to go for me because ultimately I liked the idea of being an internist, but also I knew I I needed to go internal medicine route to pursue cardiology.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's dope. And like, it's, I don't know if it's a Howard thing or just medicine and, you know, medical school in general, because that was my same kind of experience with Dr. Saram down in the surgical ICU, you know, Mm -hmm. running on those crazy patients and getting pimped mercilessly. And that's what, like, put in my mind, like, yo, you, you're going to become an ICU doctor one day, like, you're going to be this dude. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Man, so you, and you doubled down on medicine, because I don't know all of the rankings for uh, medicine residency programs, but I imagine Duke is going to be somewhere near the top. I mean, they just do incredible things at Duke, a renowned kind of reputation. What in your application um, and the way you set yourself up for the the match system, you know, what was the secret or what was the trick or or what got you into Duke for residency?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. And it's something I preach, you know, pretty often to a lot of people I Mentor. The secret sauce is really in leadership and specifically within leadership involvement uh, through the SNMA, Student National Mm -hmm. Medical Association. I mean, I really, again, I'm not not doing this to my own horn, but I interviewed at a lot of the top programs and the same recurring questions regarding my leadership in SNMA came about. I thought it really wasn't, like, it's not a coincidence. Within the SNMA, I served as Region 6 Director uh, overseeing, uh, you know, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia Medical School chapters. In the MAPS chapters. And then before that, I was corresponding secretary for the region as well. And I think, you know, that national leadership, not only the position itself, but longevity within the position allowed me to do so many different things. And, and that itself spoke to commitment to whatever it was I was involved in. Um, a lot of the residency programs that I, you know, I interviewed at Yale, Cornell, Columbia, MGH, Duke, Damn. Hopkins, you named it. And they all really talked about my involvement Mm estimate. Obviously you have to have like the standard, you know, step one score, step two score. Mind you, I, I don't think my scores were that impressive. They were okay. Um, And your clerkship grades, you have to like not have any kind of glaring red marks on your, on your uh, evaluation, your Dean's letter, your MSPE. But I think, you know, those things, all things being equal, what set me aside from others was my leadership experience. and then. On top of that, I always tell people, I mean, this is the Black Doctors podcast. This is a safe space where I can say this, right? Yeah, of so, course. I think like if you come to the table as a Black man or Black woman and you are equally qualified on paper as your counterparts, counterparts being non-Black anything, I think nine times out of 10, as long as you interview well, they're probably going to pick you to fill that spot because these days diversity is like the new sexy thing and you're a hot commodity as a unrepresented minority trainee that's coming to the table equally qualified so i think that also helped because you know i noticed you know at a lot of these interview tables i was the only not only black male but black person a lot of the wow. times um during interview day and that's when imposter syndrome really started to hit i was like wow maybe i'm just a number like they're trying to interview me so they can say they tried to recruit a the first class but uh you know, now my mindset's changed because you know, I think as you move along this path, you really realize you've earned the right to be at these these tables.
0: So that that's um, interesting that that you you had those feelings with the, and it kind of uh sprung up during the interview process. I imagine at Howard, you know, you're around, uh, you know, a lot of us, and and it's a very family environment. So, um, interesting, kind of you started to feel that it sounds like during um the residency interviews.
1: Yes, yes, that's where I, I want to say that's probably the first time in my life that I felt it. At Howard, I didn't feel it like at all because, like you said, everybody looked to the left, to the right. Everybody looked like you or was of some type of minority ethnic or cultural background. Like, I didn't. I never even knew what imposter syndrome was beyond uh, or until I got beyond Howard. And that started, not even when well, I matriculated to residency, it was during the interview process is when I felt it. Hmm. Yeah.
0: But, but then you got that acceptance to Duke and you moved to North Carolina. So surely, you know, you thought to yourself, I made it. Um, I got in, I deserve to be here. I'm about to, you know, crush this, uh, residency,
1: no? Oh, uh, I was nervous, man. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. Like you came from Howard. You know, I love Howard dearly. Um, I'll never speak ill of Howard. I just feel like, you know, there's, I can say this now, like hindsight bias looking. I trained medical students from Duke. I've trained medical students now at, at Penn. I'm also involved in medical education, their curriculum, teaching. And I see there's just so many vast resources they have. Mm. Even when it comes down to the minute stuff, like learning EKGs. Like I did not learn EKGs at Howard. I did not. And it, it's not because of anything else, but I think just lack of formal structure when it comes to teaching certain things and, and kind of going in depth with things. So coming into residency, I felt like I was behind the eight mark. Like I felt like I had to really they catch up. And that's I think that's what residency is all about. A good residency program's gonna take trainees from all different levels from their respective medical institutions. And there's a learning curve that's different for everybody, but by the end of your training, you should all be at the same place. And yeah. that's what Duke really did for me and uh definitely came a long way.
0: Yeah, and I think that with Howard, like like you hit on it, man, the resources, um, despite, you know, the lack of resources that we had, we did have faculty that poured into us um, Dr. Forrester, like folks that really cared and knew what we could become. And despite that lack of resources, I mean, having only one neurosurgeon at the hospital, um, having limited exposure to so many fields, um, it, you don't really know what it's like to get to other programs. I remember when I started residency, I could see the medical students uh, in, in Chicago that could literally just go to the OR and scrub into whatever case they, they wanted and get that surgical experience or the patient complexity or the advanced technology. And it's like, you know, you start to see how that environment and those resources really do at least, you know, change the trajectory of your, of your career. We, we didn't know half of what we could have gotten into coming out of Howard.
1: Right. Right. And I think what you said, the fact that you have the professors, how passionate they are, how much they pour into us as, as students, you know, it, you may have a lack of resources, but I think the scales tip still back into a sense of balance with other medical institutions by how much investment there is by the faculty and staff in the student body, in that family environment that you don't really see other places. Uh, the whole concept of gunnerism, like you have gunners in class and people are trying to put others down because they see their classmates and their fellow students as, as competition, potential residency spots. You don't see that as much at how and that culture itself, I think, kind of balances to uh, the lack of like tangible resources, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, I still will always, I always encourage mentees to apply to Howard to go to Howard. I still think it's one of the best medical institutions, experiences, and valuable. And it really teaches you a lot of grit and how kind of to get it out the mud. <laughs> and, and
0: the, the legacy, because man, we got some stories from Howard. The, uh... Too many stories. Uh, this is a family friendly show. Uh, sure. The date auctions, smokers. What else? The homecoming. Home, you, you were. you went to homecoming this year, didn't you?
1: I did. Yes, I did. Nothing's changed.
0: Nothing. All right. Love to love to hear it. Um, and then because I know when I graduated, Diddy was our like he had an honorary doctorate, and you know that was cool and all, but I think was it your year that you had uh, Obama for commencement?
1: That was that was twenty sixteen.
0: And then uh, Brother Chadwick Bozeman, it's just like the, the culture and history and legacy of, of the entire Howard University. Like you kind of have that coming out of that institution and and the family is just so strong.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: You mentioned uh, kind of, you know, being at the table and being an underrepresented uh, minority of black applicants and how it does set you apart. And I wonder, like, you know, people talk about that all the time with affirmative action. I'm like, oh, this is people that are are not qualified, that are just getting these roles because they're black or because they're woman or whatever. And I just wanted to, you know, it, it key into one thing that you mentioned, and you were like, when you are, you know, equally qualified, or in a lot of cases, sometimes more qualified than people that don't look like you. Um, and that was the thought process and the necessity of affirmative action, and how that does kind of help. We're trying to equal the wrongs that have been done for generations, and generations, and, and Thankfully, you know, you can still see a little bit of that. I think the court rulings and systems are starting to change and we don't know what's going to happen with um, affirmative action. There's a big uh, court thing that's going on soon. So we'll see how that plays out. Hey there. I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPODCAST and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer... Question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn smart bank. Check them out at truelearn.com. And again, remember to use the code DDPodcast to receive your special discount. Now back to the show. Um, let's see. So, so you talked about, you know, imposter syndrome and how you experienced that in, um, on the residency interviews, a little bit of residency, like how, you know, did it, how did you overcome that or or get past imposter syndrome?
1: I think majority of it was me like talking to people. Uh, it's a, a lot of vulnerability to really express that you're, that you're going through that, that you're having that kind of, uh, mental disturbance, if you will. Uh, but it's, it's really, I mean, that's what exactly what it is. It's all psychological. It's all mental. One thing I learned from my mentors at Duke, uh, namely like Kevin Thomas, Larry Jackson, some real good brothers, uh, like Sipa Yankee, another he's a cardiology fellow. He, uh, they all pretty much told me, you know, you got to look at the objective stuff. Like a lot of the feelings of imposter syndrome is subjective meaning it's self-imposed thoughts and feelings based off of whatever scenario. But when you look at the objective things that are occurring within that scenario, you may realize that there's nothing that's really substantive to um, have those feelings upon. I think, I think a lot of what it is, is just feeling like you're, you look different than the majority of people that you're in an environment with you may potentially have a hiccup, whether it's you say something wrong, you put in the wrong order, you had some type of, I don't know, reporting, um, some nurse put in a report about you, and then you feel like, you know, wow, I'm not qualified to be here. Like, you know, how could I mess up so bad? My counterparts aren't getting these same type of, um, or having these same type of issues or, or uh, disturbances in their training. But again, these are all thoughts and feelings. Because realistically, a lot of people go through the same things when it comes to residency. It's just it's not open and talked about. Yeah. You automatically think it's only you. You put yourself in the and Think it's only it only has to be you because you look different or you come from a different place or have a different background or upbringing. Um, it's all psychological, and it, it's it's it can be like debilitating if you don't kind of get a grasp of that and, and a hold of that and kind of redirect that energy. I think just again, being vulnerable, talking to people, being responsive to feedback, not seeing feedback as a way to uh, somebody attacking you. Like, take all feedback as constructive, unless it's like blatantly explicit, like right. disrespect right. in a way that you can tell is just not sincere. Uh, but feedback should be constructive. It's not meant to be nice, it's not meant to be lighthearted, but it's meant to be constructive, meaning how can I learn from this experience and build from it? Just take it all as is and, and don't take anything personally i think you know imposter syndrome it, it it itself is part of like a hidden curriculum when it comes to medicine as a trainee as a urm trainee specifically because nobody really teaches you how to prepare for it you just kind of experience it one day and yeah you find your way it's it's uh something that probably should be talked about talked about more um, in preparation for folks, because I think undoubtedly, like anybody that comes from an underrepresented minority group will experience it at some point. And I, I know some attendings today, some of my attendings here at Penn, they still experience it. They tell me they still experience it. And that's part of that vulnerab- vulnerability part. You know, be just being open to tell, you know, your trainees, you know, medicine's a hierarchy. You can look at your attending as the top and then fellow resident intern student. You have attendings who are still telling the trainees at every learning stage that they still experience some imposter syndrome. So it's, it's a normalized thing when you can talk about it, you can process it um, and recognize that it's just psychological most of the time and you need to find a way to kind of overcome and redirect that thought process, that energy and make it make it something that's more positive.
0: Yeah, no, that's dope. Some gems in there for for folks, if you're listening, especially coming from uh, someone as esteemed and learned as yourself i <laughs> appreciate you um, you know one one of the things i appreciate about you mazi is that over the years you've continued to give back whether through snma whether through your the, the students that you mentor the application stuff help that you provide to people so how have you continued to make that time or, or what motivates you to continue to give back and and continue the service to folks kind of
1: Coming behind you. Yeah, man. Um, one thing I'll say I appreciate it about you too, because I know you do the same thing. It's not something that we do for, you know, uh, applause or some type of, you know, spotlight. I think it's more so pouring back into people that need it the most, that being specifically uh, underrepresented minority students, trainees, because at the end of the day, we know we didn't get to our positions alone. Without other people pointing to us and mentoring us, and then beyond that, I think the the need for more of us is what helps us, you know, put that effort forward to to assist however we can, and that starts with getting more people into medical school, more black and brown students into medical school, and then supporting them every step of the way when they're transitioning from medical school to residency, residency to fellowship, fellowship. Or residency to attending hood, whatever it is, if we're ahead of the game and we've been through it before, our goal should be to make it a little bit easier for them, even if the process looks a little different. Because you know, now the MCAT's a little different, even the application itself to get to medical school and residency and whatnot is still a little is a little different than what it was when we did it. Um, but if there's any kind of guidance we can provide, I think it's beneficial for all those reasons I stated before. You know, the way I find time is really just. You got to make time. Like we all have the same 24 hours in a day. It's definitely not possible to do everything you want to do every day. But I always tell people this as well. Like one of the big life skills you learn from medicine, this whole journey we all take is <laughs> is the, the concept of triage. Yeah. Um, you know, applying that to not just patient care and disposition within the hospital, but triaging like your life. Like you have to be able to, Sift through everything you have going on, and figure out what's important to you, and what you can make time for. What you can make time for, um, when can you make time for it? It takes a lot of sacrifice because um, you know, Lord, Lord knows I'm not getting paid for half the stuff I do after after hours on the clock or off the clock, I should say. Um, but I think it's meaningful stuff, and you know, I, I think somebody has to do it if we want to really see the change that we're that we're asking for. Um, yeah. Yeah, and this change that we're asking for is not necessarily to benefit us in any way. It's more so to benefit, and it's beyond even benefiting the individual that we're trying to help. It's about benefiting the people as a whole. Exactly. You know, I'm sure you know good and well, you know, there's studies out there, like, objectively, outcomes are better when patients are cared for by providers that look like them, right? And the patients that need uh, the most help are minority, socially disadvantaged Socially, economically disadvantaged that patient population, that demographic. So, to help them, we got to get more people that look like them, more black and brown, more people from those types of backgrounds. And to do so, we have to start by getting more of them into medical school. That's where we can help, you know, really make a part and make a difference.
0: Absolutely, hundred percent agree. And and even more than just the, you know, increasing that percentage of black physicians, um, at six percent, you know. We can't possibly be everywhere that there are patients that look like us and that need us. But the other effect that we have is, wow. you know, being in these medical pipelines, you know, increasing the diversity in each medical school class, it allows for, you know, that, that cross learning, the interdisciplinary learning from each other. And now your, your co-fellows, your co-residents, your co-medical students are interacting with you and they're hearing your perspective. And they can take that, you know, if they're receptive, and hopefully be a little more culturally competent uh, when they engage with patients from, you know, cultures that aren't their own. Absolutely, absolutely, um, man. As we, we start to wrap up, we got to talk about cardiology because you're you're in fellowship now. Uh, so how is that going with fellowship? You know, everything that you dreamed it would be. Are you surviving?
1: Yeah, man. Uh, yeah. So fellowship is. Well, I'll start by saying it's night and day from residency. Hmm. I don't know if it's like this everywhere, but Penn has some type of special formula, special stuff that really makes fellowship extremely enjoyable. Um, I think we get so much immersion in every discipline, every, you know, granular part of cardiology. There's never one instant where you feel like you're bored or you're not being stimulated. Um, it's a very hands-on program. We get a lot. We to do a lot. We take call, but call is actually very reasonable. This is one of the larger programs in the country. So as you can imagine, if you only, if you have only three fellows in the program versus eight, nine, or ten like we have in our classes here, wow, the volume, the amount of call you do is you know a lot different. Um, so first year I was taking call one night a week, one weekend a month on average. Now I take call one night every two weeks. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, so it, it work life balance is night and day, and I tell people as well mentees who are you know pursuing the cardiology path, uh, probably like, med their med school and they're trying to look for residencies to train at. I always tell people residency should be the hardest place you ever work in your life. Like residency, you shouldn't go to residency looking to have you know an easy you know amusement park type of experience because at the end of the day you want to come out. And feel clinically competent and feel like your acumen is to the point where you can handle any kind of patient within your specialty. Um, yeah. so you I really wanna feel like you've seen it all. And that's why, you know, I tell people don't don't run from call, don't run from nights, like go to a place where you're gonna work hard. Um, your call schedule and residency shouldn't even dictate what program you're looking at. That shouldn't be a factor necessarily. You should look at other things. Um, but then when you transition to beyond that, you're trying to, you know, look for a subspecialty training like cardiology. I tell them that's when you can take a step back and say, "Okay, I don't need to be beat up, and go through some crazy schedule, and have call like every other night to learn cardiology. I don't need to go through that because I went through that to become a good doctor. Now I'm trying to become a good cardiologist and kind of emphasize those skills within the cardiology skills that I learned from residency. So, you know, going to fellowship, I was really, you know, focused on work life balance and finding a place I got gave good clinical clinical rigor, but without the crazy schedule. And uh, Penn really was a combination of that. So um, it's relative. You know, at Duke, I worked hard. Now, you know, at Penn, it's just like, I don't want to call it cake because I don't want people to think I'm not working. But it's its very, very much more manageable. And there's a lot more time to enjoy life outside the hospital.
0: Yeah. And to focus on learning like, like that, uh, when it's less of a workload, you can really focus on learning cardiology.
1: Correct. Correct. That balance between service and education scale kind of tips more in the favor of education when you're not being worked crazily.
0: How's, uh, you work with Dr. Anya Oh yeah. That's my guy.
1: That's my guy. Yeah. He's one of my attendings. Uh, he's on the general, uh, consultative and, and imaging group. So he reads echoes. He rounds in the hospital on consults. Uh, i worked with him actually. He was my attending when I was on consults as a first year fellow. Yeah.
0: That's my, that's my guy from, uh, Chicago. <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, you know, I was his hair inspiration. I see he's locked up now. So <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I think part of that is his newborn child. He might not have time. Uh, for the, and just letting the locks go.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, I know you're, no, I know you're in uh good hands. Um, I know we here wrapping up. We got to talk about, um, you know, moonlighting. Cause I think this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. I know during, I think during residency, you had a little bit of time during fellowship, a little bit of time, like, what are your thoughts on moonlighting? You know, for, for residents that are at that spot or fellows, um, you know, how important was it for you? Did you sacrifice other stuff to moonlight? Like, what was what's your general philosophy on moonlighting?
1: So, I think moonlighting is not necessarily it's not a necessity when it comes to training, but it's a, it's a luxury and an additive if you can do it. Luxury in literal in a literal sense, because it allows you to do buy more luxuries with the financial gain. Um, but it's also the, an additive because you get so much out of it. It's multidimensional. It's not just about the superficial. I can work these hours after work and, and make a paycheck. For me, uh, going to residency, actually, I didn't even know what moonlighting was. Going to residency, I found out about it probably towards the end of my first year from some of the upper class in the second, uh, second year residents and third year residence. Uh, at Duke, we had to take step, we had to pass, taking step path Take and pass step three mm-hmm. and then score a certain percentile in our ITE to Moonlight. Um, they couldn't do that also until you finish like your MICU and your ED rotation as a as a, a first year and second year. So I went through that, I started Moonlight my second year, and I realized it was very, you know, um, lucrative in multiple senses. Again, the financial side of things, but also the clinical exposure. You get so much more hands on time, you know, after hours and a really helps you develop your, and again, your clinical acumen, it's all about reps. I think about it as reps as if you're you know working out in the gym, the muscle memory really clicks with certain pathophysiologies. Um, at Duke for me, I was in the ED, a lot more moonlighting, I saw a lot of CHF, pneumonia, sickle cell crises, very straightforward, algorithmic type of pathways that would come to the observation unit, but it kind of you know instills a framework in how to approach these patients and becomes like clockwork. I realized that actually, some of that actually stuck with me. It was embedded. And when I took my internal medicine boards uh, for my board certification, a lot of that stuff was ingrained and it helped me from the boards. Wow. Um, and, you know, taking that now into fellowship, again, when I was applying to residency, I didn't even know what moonlighting was. Applying to fellowship, I know what moonlighting is, but I'm still not thinking about it as like a, a crucial part of my training experience. Again, a luxury, but I didn't ask one time. To any of the fellows or the st- faculty or staff, like, hey, is Moonlighting an option here at this program? Um, but I came to Penn, I found out Moonlighting was a thing here, got my credentials ASAP, and started Moonlighting October and November of my first year. And again, financial gain is definitely there. I probably, you know, made more money as a, as a fellow than I've ever made in my life, first of all, but also it's been able, I've been able to save a lot of money in and really start to move money in different ways and kind of prepare for different, you know, life life things I, I plan to pursue after training. Kind of yeah. gives me a head start. But again, the clinical exposure part of it now, and you know this probably you see this in the in the ICUs. I know you probably rotate through numerous ICUs, but you're probably overseeing residents uh and interns. Yeah. More so than being the hands on person who's first call provider for the patient care. Is that is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's my position now as well. I'm I'm rarely ever the first call provider, more of a consultant in multiple senses, consultant for all service uh, teams, but also consultant to provide, you know, learning education, oversee the care of patients that the residents and interns are providing patients. That being said, I'm never really putting in orders. I'm not writing notes. I sit back and just kind of talk and teach. So I really was losing that hands-on patient care aspect of of doctoring that you know, I plan to have later on, um, working in, in, in practice. So moonlighting gives me the opportunity to do that after hours. I'm the first call provider, I'm taking care of patients, admitting patients to the hospital. And again, I'm getting my reps in. So I'm getting probably more hands-on experience moonlighting than I could potentially ever get from my fellowship training, if you think about it. Yeah. And again, I'm seeing heart therapy compensations, AFib, RVR, STEMIs, STEMIs pericarditis, tamponade, you name it. I can—I see the whole breadth of cardiology, pathophysiology, while moonlighting on different services, And it's really strengthening my, my clinical ability and st- sharpening my acumen. So it's it's a win-win on both sides. I personally encourage all people to moonlight when they have the ability to. Um, obviously, you don't want to get in the, in the way of your fellowship. You have to be doing well during your day hours as you're working as a, as a fellow to be able to successfully moonlight overnight, it should not take precedence. But again, it should be a luxury and a supplement to your your educational experience and your fellowship training program.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of, I know you got to run and get to work, but um, you know, I'm so thankful for you coming on the podcast. and waiting to get you on here for a bit. I know fellowship had you had you working for a little bit, um, but it's been so awesome to hear your story. Um, The advice you gave on imposter syndrome, on giving back, being part of uh, SNMA and other uh, opportunities for leadership, how that impacted the trajectory of your career um, and talking about cardiology, moonlighting, all of the above. I I know this was a a very uh, insightful episode for me and hopefully for the listeners as well. Um, if you are not already following Dr. Mozzie, uh, he's on social media, Dr. Mozzie. It's, a uh, was it Dr. Underscore Mozzie on Instagram?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what, what else? You have a website, any other socials, Twitter, if Twitter's still around.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't really use Twitter, actually. I may get into it later, but I have, uh, even, I have even more reasons to stay away from it now.
0: <laughs> no, no TikTok channel.
1: <laughs> I do have a TikTok, but it's not, uh, yeah, I'm still going to that up <laughs> Uh, LinkedIn though we can keep it professional. Have a there LinkedIn. we
0: go. All right. Yeah. Awesome. We'll put those links in the show notes. But thank you so much for for joining us, um, and and thanks for listening to the show. We're here because representation
1: matters. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate this. Keep doing what you're doing.